0: What's up, gang? You're listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson, and uh, our production team is here too, Gabby Magnuson and Pete McKenzie. We are in a studio that looks like Al-Qaeda probably chopped somebody's head off here and sent it to a v- uh, somewhere on a videotape.
1: And then some uni students came and partied and just left a pile of beer yeah. outside. <laughs>
0: It's Al-Qaeda plus university students and beer bottles. Uh, it's a very good vibe for this show. So, <laughs> so uh, there's a lot to talk about, but before we get into the actual meat of the show, uh, I just wanted to say a big shout-out to Wu-Tang Clan. I pulled an all-nighter watching the hulu series that was like the origins of the wu-tang clan and i couldn't figure out where in the episode to like link it to foreign policy so just shout out at the top do you are you familiar with the wu-tang I'm, I'm
1: a, I'm a <laughs> terrible popscu- uh, pop uh pop like, person old <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's old school pop i Isn't i guys who, who locked a, a record in a in some sort of box eh? and it's going to come out in 50 years and blow everyone's mind Am I thinking of the right people? What? <laughs> I'm pretty sure this is that's right. pretty cool.
2: Actually. I, pretty yeah. fucking
1: cool.
0: <laughs> okay, I need to find out about that if that's true. For you, this would be like learning history. For me, it's, exactly. <laughs> it's not what I experienced because it was like the crack epidemic. and uh, <laughs> But it is, it's like the lore of what I grew up with because I grew up listening to these guys. Crucial Sorry.
1: foreign policy context. <laughs> yes.
0: Well, maybe something about collective action. Because RZA was like this charismatic leader and it reminds me of like the Medici family. But uh, (laughs) anyways, if you like New York hip hop, if you like the Wu-Tang Clan per se, Kung Fu, it's all kind of in there. I read somewhere that millennials like don't watch TV or younger millennials don't watch much TV.
1: I can't think of the last time I watched TV. Yeah,
2: like using an actual television set? I don't think
1: so. That's madness. Uh. That That means you have to actually
2: buy a TV. (laughs) (laughs)
0: They that's going to make it harder to ask you what you've been watching. <laughs> I mean,
2: we've been watching stuff. It, oh, just won't be on. Yeah, it just won't be on
0: TV. Oh, okay. Well, it doesn't... Yeah, that's true. You stream everything. All right. Well, we were going to record this episode a week ago, and we couldn't because Pete wasn't here.
1: This Where were true. you? I was in China to tour Xi'an and Chengdu.
0: Wow. Okay. So... Were you there with Simon Bridges?
1: No, I was there at the same time (laughs) as Simon, and that was a wild time. Uh, So I was there with an organization called the Asia New Zealand Foundation, sponsored by MFAT. It's a whole deal. Yeah. Um, And we were watching jaws open, eyes wide, as Simon blundered his way through his own China trip.
0: Okay, so for those who don't know, which is like everyone in America, (laughs) Simon Bridges (laughs) is this shameless, sycophantic spokesperson for new zealand's national party which is the opposition party in new zealand and it it's kind of like they're conservatives but in american context they're like blue dog democrat democrat conservatives and um he's kind of notorious for putting his foot in his mouth he went to china apparently the same time as pete he gave this sycophantic interview with uh like some Chinese television station and it's pretty gross and do we have a clip of his interview?
1: We do indeed.
2: What's your opinion about the current illegal and, uh, um, you know, the very violent incidents here in Hong Kong that have gone against the one country, two systems policy?
1: This has served not perfectly and we believe reform is needed, but New Zealand's interests very well. We understand. Uh, and accept China's sovereignty uh, in Hong Kong okay <laughs>
0: so th- <laughs> so this guy right opposition leader crucial he,
1: political leader
0: why does he have to meet with the chinese minister of state security
1: head of the chinese secret police
0: it smells funny. At a minimum, it's like the appearance of conflict of interest. And you it raises red flags. But then on top of that, he does the the video that you just heard. And it's six minutes of gushing about China and kissing Xi Jinping's ass. And... At one
1: point, they ask him what they give him a, a amazing compliment about the, the Chinese state. And then he says, let me take it a bit further. <laughs> and you know, when you take it a bit further than the state, TV reporter that you are in a bit of a trouble.
0: This is just like embarrassing, cringeworthy stuff. Like when I saw this, I was kind of disgusted. And I also thought to myself, like, well, that's how China wins. You know, like democracy is not necessary when you've got Chinese money. That was what it read like to me. Like, who, you know, how can you compete with that? How can you compete with the Chinese dollar? Uh, that And so that's what democratic values are now. I don't know.
1: Deep, deep down, I felt a little bit sorry for Simon. Because I reckon he just got screwed by the Chinese state. Like, surely the, you know... what's
0: well, that's a cautionary tale for all of us. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so you say you were not there with...
1: I was not. So I went to Xi'an and Chengdu, and we were doing a bit of Track 3 diplomacy, so... So, um...
0: yeah, so for those who don't know, this is a good chance to, like, I don't know, play the, like, educational role. For those who aren't familiar with track language... Track 1 diplomacy is government-to-government official channels of communication, of diplomacy. Track 2 is unofficial diplomacy, usually with think tanks or intellectuals or former officials who meet in sort of representations of their government, but like deniably. And then track 1.5 is a blend of the two. And those are all the tracks anyone ever talks about. But there's technically, I think, like nine tracks of diplomacy and track three is this, depending on who you talk to, it's people to people diplomacy or it's business to business diplomacy, which is, of course, greedier.
1: We were talking about (laughs) peanut butter and chocolate milk so I had a great time. It was uh, a lot of fun.
0: Capitalism. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And this was your first time to China? It was my
1: first time to China to just speak the language and have a bit of a chat. And at one point we were in a taxi going through peak uh traffic in Xi'an um and the taxi driver we're halfway through this conversation and he turns to me and he's like so what do you think of Xi Jinping (laughs) and I looked at the I looked at the taxi driver and I was like I don't know how to answer this question so I ignored it but I and you could see in his face how he was just loving to you know loving the opportunity to trip up the foreigner and have a have a joke at my expense I thought it was very funny
0: yeah what's funny is like Tom Friedman, who's kind of like a joke of a columnist, but he's also super famous. that's like his, his his chief method of research is to like talk to taxi drivers. So that's that's how you get the real insight of a country apparently. I should
1: be a New York Times columnist. Yeah, should. we all should. So
0: <laughs> so uh, what was talked about in these meetings? What were the, what were the Chinese telling you?
1: So the Chinese were trying to explain the economic vision that they had and how New Zealand business people could fit into that. And so every single time we went to a meeting or a conference or anything, the, a local party economist would come up on the stage, uh, would present the amazing opportunities presented by, insert city name here, um, and then would explain how that fit into the Belt and Road. So in Chengdu, the Belt and Road, Chengdu was going to be the axle on which the Belt and Road turned. Um, in Xi'an, it was going to be the the home, the start, the origin of Belt and Road. And so it was all framed in the kind of language of the central state, but with these really fascinating kind of regional spins on it.
0: That's interesting that like Belt and Road would be the centerpiece or the the core concept and then everybody's kind of grafting onto it however however they can best make use of it mm-hmm. or rationalize what they're doing.
1: Different bits of rhetoric like the home, the axle, the heart. It was really it was really interesting.
0: So on the one hand, that makes it sound like Belt and Road is this haphazard shit show because everyone's just interpreting it Mm. in ways that suit their own interests. And so in that sense, it's kind of eminently unstrategic. But then on the other hand, the fact that everyone kind of takes it for granted and that everyone is singing from the same hymnal book, like they've all fallen in line, everyone's Touting this idea or this slogan, you know, that including Simon Bridges, um, that makes the initiative itself kind of like soft power or uh, symbolic capital if you're a sociologist. This is, I mean, to me, Belt and Road is a manifestation of like a vanity project where China's trying to realize regional hegemony and they're doing it through lots of foreign policy corruption. And that's, that's like, that's what I see in the Belt and Road. I'm pretty sure that's not what they told you.
1: I would be, yeah, I would have been surprised if they had uh, told me that. <laughs> they would be a very brave party economist uh, yeah. and probably a very short-lived one. No, we were told all about how it could be this amazing link between East and West uh, and between developing and developed countries. Win-win. Win. A win-win, exactly. Yeah. It was a win-win opportunity for everyone involved, which you can read as you will. Yes,
0: well that's how they would like it to be. I mean that's why they that's why China's able to get away with Belt and Road though in a sense because it's responding to an organic demand. Everybody wants money. Mm-hmm. Developing countries want money. Corrupt politicians want money. Simon Bridges wants money, you know. And so that's what's on offer. And the the story that they tell about like win-win harmony makes it makes the medicine go down easy. Even if you know implicitly, there's corruption on the back end or something.
1: When you're going into these kinds of things, like that was the that was the challenge that I had to adjust to, is how do you how do you read rhetoric like that? How do you pass what a what a regime is telling you hmm. to figure out what's really going on? Because it was a pretty rough awakening for me going into that kind of thing.
0: So they're telling you all of this nice, nice stuff, but you knew before even going there, Belton Road had this like alternative narrative kind of, yeah, I mean, so it's a question of credibility and credibility of uh, a regime's rhetoric. So it's normally a function of like capability and interest and reputation, or like the simpler term for reputation is track record. What have you said and done in the past Hmm. in analogous circumstances? In the China context, like what really matters here is a consideration of their possible motives and then, what is their actual track record? And like, I'm not a the sinologist, but like, the track record appears to be a pattern where of cultural doublespeak or political doublespeak, where they say uh, harmony, win-win. It's always this very visionary, lofty rhetoric, and then the behavior and the practices of their foreign policy involve economic coercion or exploitation, or asymmetric agreements with smaller states where they leverage their size. Um, and it's always like these bilateral agreements because they don't want any sort of like collective transparency. Mm. And it's the same with like their defense white papers. They say one thing and then you look at what the PLA is investing in and where they're deploying and like this doesn't this doesn't add up. So that's my concern. Um, and just to, like circle back to the bigger question, right? You can't take at face value what a regime says rhetorically, mm. look at their motives and look at their track record. And if the Chinese motives were as altruistic as the Harmony Win-Win stuff, why not funnel development aid through the AIIB or the IMF? You know, or like, why don't you use existing institutions, World Bank? Uh, You don't use those institutions, I think, because you're trying to make yourself the center of the universe. And then so the question for us, when we're asked to sign on to this glory project is vanity what do we get out of it and how does that weigh against what the consequences of this thing will be and making china if it helps make china the center of the universe and china is like unquestionably illiberal that (laughs) is that worth getting simon bridges a consulting job when he gets fired from being the national spokesman Stay off Twitter segments. The the, the premise here is like, we read Twitter so you don't have to. And I would not be on Twitter personally if I didn't have to be. Twitter is like rifle to a Marine. It's my weapon. So I got to be there. You don't necessarily as a listener have to be there. So we've we've curated some tweets, choice foreign policy tweets um, that are either speaking some sort of profound truth or are controversial and worth bringing up. And because it's like four days old, it's ancient history in Twitter land. So this is almost like going through the archives. Pete, you had a a good one to kick us off. Do you want to bring it up?
1: I do. I have one from my absolute favorite uh, Democratic presidential candidate, Marianne Williamson, (laughs) uh, whose chances of winning the nomination increase every day. Um, Right. So Marianne uh, tweeted essentially that we should... Cultivate peace with all the vigor that we prepare for war, which seems to me fairly intuitive.
0: Well, so I, you should know, I printed out the tweets we're going to talk about. So I have hard copy prints of tweets. And uh, that makes me sound like an old white man.
1: That makes you sound like Donald Trump.
0: I'm neither old nor white, uh, or at least not fully white. And so, (laughs) and not fully old. Do you
1: sign them and then send them to your.
0: I mail them to myself. (laughs) So the tweet is War is the absence of peace. Peace is not the absence of war. We have to cultivate peace just like we have to be prepared for war if war must come. And uh, I have to say that I am, I find Marianne Williamson like very charismatic, very appealing on a personal level. There's something about her that like draws me in. But I think she's completely unqualified to be president, and so on. Some I I, I sort of get the Trump voter right. Mm. They are drawn in by somebody that they find like incredibly appealing, but wholly unqual. And they have to know in their heart of hearts, this man's not qualified. I know she's not qualified.
1: Surely the only position worth having is spiritual advisor to Oprah. Like once you've done that, yes, you can do anything.
0: You might as well be president. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oprah should be president. Um, Well, I didn't say that. So, (laughs) I mean, so 80% of what Marianne Williams, this is why I like her, 80% of what she says is the truth. It's like she's, she's keeping it real. Like she's saying things that are kind of like profoundly true, even when they're not new. Like war is the absence of peace. Peace is not the absence of war. No shit. I mean, but like, but also it does need to be said because that's not how we... She's saying that for a reason. It's because we don't act that way. So eighty percent she's on the money. Twenty percent though is kind of woo woo. Mm. She is twenty percent of what she says is like, I mean, to say generously, it would be like she's she's saying things that are unfalsifiable. But it's really like magic crystals. There's a dark beads. force yeah. invading America. Well, see. That's like my favorite line from her, actually. Mm. But but, the, but that's that hits on the point is yeah. like she thinks in term in like cosmic terms mm. and energies and like that's not what you want from a president. <laughs> that's what you want from a fortune teller. And so she's a truth teller. She's speaking mm. truth, and that that tweet is speaking truth. But the truth is not enough. Presidents need to know policy. She doesn't know fuck all about policy. And so that's my that's my reservation.
1: Yeah. I would never have guessed. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, the, the problem here is that her narrative, her story, yes, it makes sense. Yes, that's the right story. But at the policy level is where that falls apart or where you end up having tensions. There's
1: probably a, a wider story to tell here as well because, I mean, a lot of focus has been given semi-recently. I'm thinking of, like, how everything became war and... War Became Everything. Oh, the Rosa Brooks The Rosa book, Brooks yeah. book. Uh, there's a lot of attention being paid to the kind of ever-expanding role of the Defense Department. And I wonder if, you know, this plays into that, this idea that we're slowly turning the whole of the U.S. state's presence overseas into defense-related or war-related activities.
0: Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's why I liked the tweet, mm. because it is, it's trying, it's challenging the overarching presumption. That seems to be permeating US foreign policy, which is like just such a defense heavy thing now. Mm. And it just seems like it's going more so and more so under Trump. And so that's great. The issue is like at a practical level, especially for the Defense Department, like at a certain point, the efforts that you have to make as part of peace building end up being in tension with the efforts you have to make as part of planning for war. There's actually a trade off at a certain point. And so where do you want to take risk in the name of peace building, right? Do you want to be unprepared for plausible future conflicts because that's the path of peace building? Or uh, do you want to unilaterally disarm from the American nuclear triad or from hypersonic glide vehicles, even as China and Russia are developing them and deploying them? Do you take those huge risky actions in the name of peace? Because that's in the name, that would be peace building.
1: And that's probably the kind of way that Marion Williamson envisions it, you know, like quite stark choices, but there's probably a little bit more room to maneuver, right? Like having professional aid personnel delivering aid as opposed to U.S. military personnel and slightly less stark choices on the ground.
0: Yeah. I mean, so hopefully we'll talk about this in a future episode. She actually proposes a Department of Peace, Mm. which is problematic for all kinds of reasons. (laughs) But the idea behind it is this trying to make peace in the world commensurate with the, the the vigor of war making there's just a a, a point at which they come into conflict mm. and i think that's where normal people and strategists and policymakers start to have a problem because mm. you don't take on national security risk because your 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 magic crystals <laughs> said so you know i it sounds like i'm mocking her but like i am not kidding i really like her she's just not presidential not all the way there yeah yeah So another tweet that I had that was really interesting, although completely wrong, comes from Gordon Chang, who is a conservative kind of hawkish pundit in the U.S., and he focuses on foreign policy. He says, if you free Hong Kong, you eventually free China. If you free China, you end regimes in Iran and North Korea. So do you think it might be a good idea to help the people of Hong Kong? That's his tweet. (laughs) (laughs) So this is reverse domino theory, right? He is proposing that democratizing Hong Kong or freeing Hong Kong from Chinese control will somehow end the Communist Party in China and end Kim Jong-un's regime and bring, I don't know, uh, Christianity to Iran or something I don't know what it's not clear like the problem with this is the logical gaps. Mm. like this doesn't really make sense. Um, but I also think like if you're trying to persuade people to support the Hong Kong protesters, this is not the argument to mm. do it because you're saying regime change everywhere because of Hong Kong. So like people on the left, I want they're allergic to the very notion of like regime change because Iraq is what comes to mind. And uh, that's not unreasonable. And it sounds like that's what he's implying. Like it's almost linking military adventurism to the Hong Kong thing where we the chance that we're going to intervene is like close to zero. And so like the the solidarity with Hong Kong argument is about democracies supporting democracies opposing imperialism, opposing authoritarianism, um, and it's about supporting actual civil society, it's not about overthrowing China or overthrowing <laughs> North Korea or overthrowing Iran. Yeah. So I, I imagine his tweet was well-intentioned, but just illogical and not the best argument. One other tweet, or did you have something else, sir? No, 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 that's not okay. yeah, yeah. Yeah, one other tweet by uh, Tom Wright, who is my man, he's at Brookings, He's a little more centrist than me. That's OK. So he had a, a tweet that said it was, it was actually a long Twitter thread about Bolton leaving the National Security Council. And um, as part of it, he said Bolton leaving and then saying like contradicting Trump publicly because Trump said Trump said that he asked for Bolton's resignation. Bolton says, no, actually, I resigned so you didn't fire me? And he's right?
1: now roasting him behind closed doors.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so Bolton kind of speaking out a little bit in his own defense, um, Tom Wright said this sets the stage for a GOP civil war over foreign policy. If the challenge was coming from the center, the Tom Cottons and Lindsey Grahams of the world would stand foursquare behind Trump. It is much harder if it is from Trump's right, Bolton, and on an issue they care about, like Iran. And Tom Wright is saying there's like a GOP civil war brewing over foreign policy. And I wish that were true. I want him to be right. And I think Bolton spoke out for reasons of like self-preservation. So it did because it didn't look like then he got shit canned, even though he might be correct. Like, but I think that's why he spoke out. I don't think this this implies like a larger challenge to Trump over foreign policy because the Republican Party is still a Trump cult. Like, he controls the the show still. So if they're not going to confront Trump over anything else, surely they're not going to do it over foreign policy. But I just thought it was interesting because it is something to watch for. Maybe, hopefully. I mean, it was
1: really interesting because I thought the tweet was half right. Right. So if the challenge comes from the center, like we shouldn't buy Greenland, Mm. Tom Cotton's going to write a New York Times op-ed saying we should buy Greenland. Yeah. The tweet falls down when it comes to the other side. Which is where I think you're right. Which is there is little hope, and that even if it comes from the right, the Trump, the cult of Trump is going to win out.
0: Yeah. So I mean, who knows? Like, it's it's worth watching for, mm. so that if it happens, we're not surprised. But the odds of it happening seem seem pretty small at this yeah. point. Um, unless they turn on him over the economy. It's time for our red team segment, which is brought to you by the Ambassadors Brief ambassadorsbrief.com. Each red teaming segment, we take a closer look at a piece of analysis that's been posted up in the ambassador's brief. They have some good content. So, Pete, you've been the curator of this. What uh, what topic do we have this week?
1: I have. So, James padu a former ambassador, a former deputy assistant secretary general of NATO, pretty impressive guy, I think, wrote an op-ed uh, published in the ambassador's brief about Afghanistan, the Taliban, and the withdrawal agreement that is in the works, um, and Pardue's two essential points was basically that the US is operating from a position of weakness. He analogized to uh, the United States in Vietnam just before the Paris Peace Accords, mm. um, and then he said that despite that weakness, and despite the fact that the US probably won't be able to control anything that the Taliban does, uh, that it should withdraw anyway. That it's just too big of a commitment too open-ended, um, and that the states should just get out.
0: Yeah, I mean, so in theory, red teaming would imply that we're going <laughs> to take down this piece, but actually this is a pretty good piece, Yeah, right? I agree with like 90% of it, maybe even more. The, the idea that it's time to withdraw, the idea of a weak bargaining position that gets worse over time, the idea that like Afghanistan, its future is going to depend on the people there, not on what we do, like all of that just makes sense, right? It's all true. The only like blind spot I could see in this piece, it's not even something that was wrong so much as like left out. How do you do withdraw? Like mm. there's many ways to withdraw. Mm. That's one of the, the points of disagreement across the democratic candidates, how quickly, how completely. And like we needed to get out of Afghanistan 10 years ago. That's for real. How quickly you do it now and whether you need a residual force presence It depends on like what theory of the case you have that connects foreign military presence like a U.S. and coalition military presence to the outcome of political stability and democracy, democratization. And so if there's no connection that you can draw like an argument that connects foreign military presence to that, then you just need to get the fuck out quickly, Hmm. like even within a year Um, and then just do so recognizing there is a risk. This becomes a base for terrorism again, in which case you have to drop bombs again.
1: And I think that was the most revealing part of the op-ed is that Padiou essentially said, look, we should get fuck out um, and that we can do that safe in the knowledge that contingency forces elsewhere in the region can intervene to you know, attack threats or keep some sort of peace. And that seemed to me to be an interesting statement that you're withdrawing from Afghanistan, but not really.
0: Yeah, or like you're technically withdrawing, but then you're still sort of in the area prepared to respond. You're always watching. You're
1: always ready to have it, you know, to strike.
0: Yeah, you can't. I mean, this is the the larger problem. Like a lot of people who talk about forever war and they use Afghanistan as like Exhibit A, that's that's might be valid. But like solving Afghanistan in the sense of bringing troops home does not solve the larger problem. And being there doesn't solve the problem either. And that's the dilemma. (laughs) Mm. But like withdrawing from Afghanistan does not change the overall character of U.S. foreign policy. And so there's still going to be this like interventionist bias. There's still going to be troops in the region. Like this is just one piece of the puzzle that's taken on like symbolic importance. And so uh, what's interesting about Pardieu is like he's a national security establishment kind of guy. Mm. And he's saying get the fuck out. So if that's where sort of like the cool headed centrists are, I don't know what his politics are, but if that's where the center is, then man, the politics have changed around this enough that like get out and then we just be prepared to bomb. I mean, because it might have We might have to. If they start attacking people, you have to bomb. That's what happens. But um, let's find out and not just stay there forever. So now for the much-advertised Ask Me Anything, Uh, Gabby has the questions that have been coming in all week, all the last two weeks or whatever. Um, Let's take a couple.
2: Okay. So the first one's from Lackey Scott. She's asking, um, what do you think about Chinese investment in Africa? Is it detrimental to Africa's development or a beneficial departure from the West's practices in the continent?
0: I wonder if Lackey Scott is a dude. Oh, apologies. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I was thinking about that. I'm like, not sure. sure yeah. I think so. Should right. I just read out?
2: No, no, that's <laughs> no, fine. Lackey like, hilarious. Yeah, yeah Lackey. So just go with Lackey. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, or
0: La- do it. know. it doesn't matter. That's fine. <laughs> we're, we're totally leaving this in too. <laughs> and that's good. So, uh, to Lackey, if that's how you say it. What do I think about Chinese investment in Africa? I think it's... Not beneficial to Africa's political development, but I do think, like with Belt and Road, it responds to an organic demand that the West and that international financial institutions are not currently addressing. So China is moving into a vacuum, effectively. The solution or the counter-strategy can't possibly be that the West has to then make Africa the centerpiece of its grand strategy like that's not China's moving into a space that we don't want to be in, basically. And so the reality of it is like, well, this is going to do some good. It's probably going to do more harm than good because of the way China's economic policy tends to corrupt governance in the countries that do business with China. But it is what it is.
2: Okay. well, following that super important question is an even more important question, also from Lackey. So uh, what's your favorite Wu-Tang solo album?
0: Oh, this is Wu-Tang Day. <laughs> so I, so like everybody, I think Wu-Tang is way better as a clan than as solo artists. But the best album, I think, was from uh, Raekwon. It's called Only for Cuban Links or Built for Cuban Links. Something like that. It came out in 95. I know that. Which is like right after Enter the 36 Chambers. Mm-hmm. And it had this track called ice cream with method man and uh ghost killer and it was fire track it was like sexy but grimy <laughs> and like really hardcore but smooth yeah. it was like so many things at once i'm not gonna wrap it but it was really good and that album had the same feel that the first wu-tang album had there was a couple other good albums by wu-tang members but that was like the standout to me
2: Man, should we link that? Yeah, (laughs) show notes. It'll be in the show notes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, great. So from Lens of History 84, they're asking, how can Saudi Arabia survive the trends towards uh, regional energy production? And what do the trends mean for U.S. Middle East slash Iranian policy?
0: So I I don't know if I'm understanding the question correctly, but if we're talking about energy trends in Saudi Arabia – I think the trends are that Saudi Arabia is fucked. And so is is most of the Gulf. And I think they know that, right? Renewables are the future. And some of the Gulf, I don't know about Saudi Arabia, some of the Gulf states are investing heavily in renewables, but it's not at all clear that that's going to be a source of economic productivity. It's more like you're just betting on for the day, you're making bets now for the day when oil goes away. Um, so they're all in trouble, and Saudi Arabia is no exception. U.S. policy seems to be doing whatever Saudi Arabia wants, which is really weird and it doesn't seem morally justifiable at all, but that's where we are right now, um, and it's not a good place.
2: Cool. From Anon, you say competition with China is not a strategy, but what is a strategy for competing with China? Oh, you
0: fucker. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yes. Yeah, so I've said that a lot, right? Like uh, competition is not a strategy. Because it's not, we do have to compete with China. We have no choice about it. Like the Western world and the United States, because China is illiberal, because China is expansionist, because it is basically a threat to democracy by default, not even necessarily that it's trying to destroy democracies through its foreign policy. It just, it's like a function of its foreign policy. And so it like corrupt governance in small countries on its periphery that do business with China that's not that, that's a war against democracy but it's not necessarily deliberate so the issue is just how we compete and the strategy for that should be tailored to the the nature of what the threat is and that's where I disagree with a lot of like China uberhawks like that's where I get off the boat um, because the threat from China to me is far more, political and economic than it is military. There is a military component. The balance of power is a thing that you have to like pay attention to, but that's not the main concern here. And so there are two things. One, an effective competitive strategy needs to combat the sphere of influence that China's trying to create. The balance of power is, in a military sense, is just a very small part of that. So we need to deconstruct sphere of influence that they're actively constructing. Um, And then the second part is like we need to get our heads around Chinese foreign policy is more accurately characterized as imperial or hegemonic. And we throw, we use these terms like very loosely, a hegemonic order and an imperial order look very different. And in the China case, they are both illiberal, but One involves almost like collective governance through institutions, and China's at the center, and that implies one kind of strategy, right? And an imperial structure places China at the center, but then the periphery is unconnected. So the smaller states are unconnected, and China does all the one-off deals. Um, Dan Nixon calls this heterogeneous contracting. And so that's a totally different structure, like a hub-and-spoke kind of thing. And the strategy for deconstructing a hub-and-spoke structure is very different from deconstructing a hegemonic order. And like I, I'm shocked that like nobody talks in these terms and we conflate the two all the time. And getting that right is what tells us what kind of strategy we should have. We're getting ahead of ourselves if we haven't diagnosed the structure of Chinese ambitions and yet we're talking about the strategy to counter China. So uh, we need to sort of take a step back in order to move forward on strategy.
2: One last one from Deacon Malden. How will the U.S. respond to the attacks on Saudi Arabia? And do you think Iran did it?
0: I'm pretty sure that's one of my students right now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, Deacon, if you're listening. So, I am sh- I think Iran... Pre- so, the Houthi rebels are, claim to have done it. The mm-hmm. question is, Did were they backed by Iran? And the answer is... Probably, yes. But who knows? Like we're operating without evidence. And so we would need evidence. Well, it appears they're responding by trying to like gin up war, uh, which there's just no support for it except on the political right. And there's no support for it internationally either. It's not clear if Iran did it. Was probably involved, and uh, that doesn't mean that we have to go to war, though. I don't, I don't, I don't have anything good to say about this right now. I'm sure it's going to come up again when cruise missiles start flying.
2: (laughs) Okay, well, that's it for the questions then.
0: Thank you for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please jump on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you're listening to us, give us a five star review. Uh, we need help in the algorithm since we're just starting out. And if you want to back the show, you can buy us a coffee. Literally go to buymeacoffee.com slash undiplomatic. You can buy us a coffee. And uh, if there's anything you want me to tackle in the next episode, just shoot a note to ask me anything at undiplomaticpodcast.com.
2: Peace.